Welcome everyone to episode 71 of the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast. You're joined by myself, Jack, Lawrence, DC, and DY. And instead of a usual catch-up, I'm just going to ask the, the gents a simple question to begin this episode. Just something that they enjoyed from their past week, maybe a bit of a highlight, something special about what they got up to. And DC, I can probably predict what you're going to say. So you're up first for this one. Yeah, no, that's. <laughs> I'm, I, I knew you were going to pan it straight over to me. Um, so yeah, the highlight for myself was being present for all of our athletes uh, down at the ICN ACT show. So um, Nicole and I went down there. She had an athlete there as well, and and um, so we attended that show. Uh, within BK conditioning, we had about five athletes on stage, and uh, everyone did did immense. And um, it was just a really exciting show to be to be amongst. Uh, I'd never been to an ICN ACT show as well. So uh, it was just cool to, 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 to go down there. And I think the last time I went to Canberra was like year seven for one of those, you know, excursions to like Questacon and the Parliament House and <laughs> all of that. So it was cool to, to go back there and, and watch the show. Uh, and everyone did awesome. Like we had Z who took out first in the gold class. He looked absolutely insane. Um, Nick came third in that lineup. It was, man, out of the, the bodybuilding lineups that I've seen for a long time, it was probably one of the most impressive lineups I've seen. Um, everyone had substance, uh, like even even second place, uh, Lee, Lee Lem looked incredible. He had one of the most impressive rear shots I've seen. And for a guy that, that sits at, uh, like, I think he's below 60 kgs on stage, like he makes that weight look big. Like he he looked um huge on stage you know so i think it's how you pose and obviously how how you're 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 filled out in terms of your portions and uh genetic structure etc but yeah that was a very impressive lineup um what then we had cooper who... him and nick like second and third what's that sorry what do you think separated him and nick um i think lee has some really good symmetry and um although he's not the biggest competitor on stage he just has a very pleasing physique to look at uh, I think everyone's conditioning up there, particularly in the top three, looked looked great. And um, but I think symmetry is is sort of what might have triumphed um, Nick Nick on stage. And uh, mate Lawrence, watch out because he he looks great, man. So you better be you better be uh, bringing your best, my man. I'll, I'll tell you, he's extremely impressive, especially considering he doesn't have a pro card. Like to mm. come second place in a stacked pro lineup with some very very good quality bodybuilders. That's that's impressive. That's a very yeah, impressive. I mean, you also had Ryan Ryan Fredericks from from Victoria mm -hmm. as well, and he looked amazing too. Like we had a conversation, and and he, he was just saying that look, you know, that that this show wasn't really his priority. He was just getting some time on stage, kind of ironing out the cobwebs. Uh, but Ryan has some immense mass on him, and like when he comes in, you know, truly one hundred percent, he's going to look insane. So, um, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, leader did really well there. But um, then we had Cooper take out first in the in the bodybuilding's overalls, and um, that was just so cool to watch because I'd, I'd worked with Cooper for uh, like a good like over a year, year and a half at least, and um, the differences between his physique uh, in his first season to this season is just immensely different, and he he definitely triumphed some competitors who were a bit bigger than him or definitely bigger than him, but he just brought in some great conditioning. He's got good symmetry. And again, I think that's what the judges were really looking for, you know, on the day is kind of prioritizing that symmetry and that conditioning. So ended up taking the overalls in that. We had Georgia take out first in, in the wellness. She did exceptionally well. And uh, then we had Holly take out the the overalls in in figure as well. So it was a pretty strong weekend. And the show was great. Like it, we 
Um, it was a really long day. Like it started at, you know, 9 a.m., finished up. I think it was like uh, half past 9, 9 p.m. So it was just like immense day. But um, yeah, enough about me. That, that that was the weekend. It was a good weekend. Yeah, sounds excellent. Um, sounds like BK dominated that show. But what about you, uh, Lawrence? Oh, I've had a pretty, pretty good week, to be honest. Like I had, um, I went out to the Toowoomba Flower Festival on Sunday with Gemma and her family. So it was actually quite nice, you know, like before heading into another peak week where, as you boys know, like the mind is sort of all on the show completely. It was actually quite nice to just get away and do something a little bit different and just kind of chill out a little bit like I think the the peak weeks are so much fun but it is quite all consuming and you kind of do feel a bit not present for everything else so yeah that was quite nice and um, obviously today's the first high carb day of the the peak week where I was able to consume my um, my customary pikelets and I actually had a um, some honey with the pikelets because uh, I had a patient that I was uh, have been treating for quite a while and she had been talking to me about like the bees that they keep at their home. And then the following week, she actually brought me in like a, a big jar of honey. So I'm hoping that she's not like a, an internal, you know, bodybuilding spy and she's, you know, maybe put trenbolone in the honey. Uh, Cause that would be an interesting twist, but it was you very heard of anabolic honey then have you? Well, apparently not. No, apparently not. This- yeah, well, I mean, your jawline's anabolic honey. Your jawline's looking exceptionally uh, jacked in this particular video. So who knows? Yeah, my nails have like grown like twice the length today. I don't know what's going on. Mm. Voice is a bit deeper as well. I don't know what you're talking about, Dy. <laughs> what about you though, Dy? Any anything new and exciting? Uh, so one of the boys um, that we normally train with pretty much organized like a little group uh, dinner. So something a little bit different, like, you know, not very often do I get to go out with my team in a setting where like, you know, it's like a dinner. So they organized pretty much like a group dinner with like a bunch of my clients where we had about 10 people all go out and uh, enjoyed obviously the only thing that was possible, which was fried chicken. So uh, yeah, it was, it was a good little event. Like, you know, something that you don't realistically get to do too often. Um, and, you know, a great bunch of people, you know, all good friends. So it was a great little event. So you went into the uh, KFC and... No, uh, it, wasn't K- it wasn't KFC. It was the Momo's oh, chicken and beer. Down. Yeah. Uh, Any beers my... consumed, do I? No or beers chicken? on my end. But Matt, the little sneaky bugger, saw him with a pint in the hand. Oh, get in there. Let's go. Yeah. Did you uh did you get your sponsorship with KFC revoked? Yeah, nah. Yeah, I lost my discount code. Damn. They, they saw a photo uploaded and they had to withdraw it. So mm, that's a shame. Uh with myself, I, I haven't actually been fishing as as regularly and um I think this was the first time in a in a few months where I went and we went with uh Tierra. I went with Tierra and her parents and that was a good afternoon on Saturday just to relax. I've been working quite a lot lately, just catching up on content production on a Saturday. So it was nice to uh just do that and, and hang out with Tierra and her family. So now that the weather's also getting warmer, it's um it's a bit more pleasant to be out there for a few hours rather than it being too cold. Certainly is getting warmer. Hey, like mm. I was walking around the house today and I was like, oh, we're going to need to open a few more windows and like get the fan rolling in here for the podcast. Like I think we're starting to to round that corner in Brisbane where it is starting to heat up. Yeah. I've got the air con as, on as we speak. So hopefully it doesn't get too hot, but I mean, you're kind of resistant to those effects being in prep. Mm. 
I think somewhat. It hasn't been as bad this time around. Like I haven't had those like days where you just cannot get warm. Mm. Like I don't feel like the the prep colds have been as bad this time around. I don't know if that's maybe just reflective of the whole prep not being as severe in terms of like the the dieting effects. But yeah, I certainly it's not as bad as I remember it. That's good. So we'll head into some questions and definitely a uh, big theme for some of the questions. I think we had three or four questions around the reverse slash recovery diet. So we can discuss this a little bit. I think it's a good opportunity to do so as well. No doubt we'll touch on it in the coming weeks anyway, because people will be wrapping up their season, but at least you should be thinking about it now. So I actually want to hand this over to you, uh, Lawrence, just to maybe initially touch on whether you think anything will change this time around with your reverse recovery diet? Granted, it will be in the the US, but aside from that, like any changes, do you think? DY is in charge. He's uh he's just going to be giving me each and every meal, planning all yeah. of it, and just feeding. I've got me. it sorted, making sure oh, there's optimal uh leucine content and all uh protein feedings. Yeah, I'm yeah, glad I you're looking him. out for him. Yeah, I trust I got, him. I've already searched up all the cookies and the macros in them, so we're set. Mm. yeah perfect no like uh, i do it's something i've thought about because you know i want to enjoy myself whilst we're overseas like it's not every day that you get to be in america with two very good friends and dy um so that's obviously quite nice (laughs) (laughs) um but i also know in my heart that like i will enjoy it more if i can come home and not be like completely blown out like i know that would kind of color my experience of it because of you know how serious we are about our goals so i think it's it's an interesting thing that like pascal and steve spoke about recently like talking about managing social events managing holidays and you know people who say oh just enjoy yourself where it's like for us part of enjoying ourselves is actually having a balance and still adhering to our goals and and not just letting um you know ourselves go completely off the rails so you know me and joey have spoken about you know just being a little bit more mindful like it's going to help that we're going to be extremely active you know like walking around the city and getting plenty of steps in but i suppose for myself like the plan will be you know for, for at least a couple meals throughout the day because it's not like we're going to eat every meal out it's like okay well if we draw it back all the way like obviously the night of the show and the day after will probably just be like all right let's sort of enjoy ourselves you know night of the show we'll probably have a big feed day after joey and i what we've always done is like three square meals but try not to snack in between and then you know for the rest of the trip i I still would like to prepare some of my own meals where i'm eating fairly normal food for what i would be eating at home and then obviously that gives us the flexibility to have like some some lunches and some dinners that will probably be more palatable food so i think i know that for myself having people around me that are competitors and having my coach there will actually help me a lot because I think it's just going to allow me to be that little bit more mindful and sort of think to myself, like, all right, am I just eating this because of YOLO or like, do I actually want this? And I just, I'm going to try to be mindful in the situation of going, okay, cool. I'm going to enjoy this, but I'm not going to overindulge any more than I need to. Um, and for the most part, try just sort of still hit protein feedings throughout the day. Um, but all, all in all, I'm pretty confident. And I think it's actually going to be quite nice to have that post-show period in the U.S., where I will sort of get a lot of it out of my system. And then by the time I come back home, like, yes, still will be some meals that family will want to have to celebrate and stuff like that. But I think that by the time I get home, 
Like there's not going to be that itch that you want to scratch where you just want to, you know, have a night to send it. So I'm fairly confident that this post show will, will hopefully be my best one yet. Mm. I think it's going to be quite a smooth transition anyway, just because you've had your food so high. Like, you know, your carbohydrates are pretty much, you know, 300 grams plus daily. And they probably will stay nearly like that all the way through prep. So realistically, you're not putting yourself in that awful position where maybe you're under sub 100 carbs. Like, you know, some unlucky beer and then, you know, you go to America there, the difference is going to be night and day between that reverse diet and like, you know, how they actually handle it. And um, <clears throat> moving over to you, uh, DC, like what do you think are two to three elements that make up a successful reverse diet or recovery diet? Yeah, good question. I think the first component is that with the, I mean, with the goal, the goalpost no longer being there, I think the recovery diet can be, uh, you know, very challenging for a lot of competitors where we've, we've essentially dieted for the last six months and all of a sudden those goalposts have been removed. And so I think part and parcel of uh, the recovery phase is also like acceptance, acceptance that, uh, I mean, the, the, the getting back into an optimal point of health means essentially three, three things. Uh, and I often voice these three things to a lot of my athletes. It's like restoration to energy availability. So, you know, calories need to come up to restore uh, good energy availability. Secondly, we need to put, put, put on ample amounts of body fat to actually be, you know, back into a healthy physiological range. And I think the, the third there, third variable there is just the time spent there. So the time spent there just to see a normalization to like our normal, you know, endocrinology, uh, but I think doing that requires acceptance too, because I think a lot of competitors really struggle with the concept of putting weight back on and, and, um, you know, you've been dieting for six months and you've seen yourself get progressively leaner and those, those lines can start to fade like pretty damn quickly. Uh, and the way in which we put, you know, potentially put body fat back on looks a lot different than how we, you know, lose body fat on the way back down. Uh, I think our, our body has a proclivity to, centralize a lot of our, our body fat distribution potentially as a means of repl replenishing like visceral fat firstly so basically replenishing uh, body fat around the midsection uh, around organs etc and we can see that that would be a like a protective mechanism um, because that that seems like the most important aspect to you know store this stuff right especially from the get-go so what does it mean for us well it means that post-show you can start to you know, look a bit watery through the midsection and kind of really put that body fat on around the midsection and perhaps your uh, peripheries or your um, your your limbs, et cetera, are, you know, still quite lean. So I think a lot of people can kind of go into like hide mode where they, they you know, the pump cover comes on. It's like this real kind of shame associated with potentially uh, seeing others and and thinking almost as if people think of you differently now that you have more body fat on you, but realistically you're actually just a healthy individual now you're, or you're healthier right? than when you're in the depths of a condos prep. So I think acceptance is a really integral component of that. Uh, I think what comes down to acceptance as well is also not trying to stay too lean for too long. Like we've, we've talked about the, the sort of the debate associated with the recovery diet versus the, the reverse diet and the recovery diet is, Hey, let's actually, bring body fat back up potentially a bit quicker than what most people would like. Um, but that's as a means of restoring those three, uh, you know, the, at least two of those aforementioned that I, I mentioned, right. Body fat and energy availability. Um, if we try and stay lean to, to, for too long, I'm only pro prolonging the diet effect. So again, it comes down to sort of acceptance there and having a plan in place. 
Um, and I, and that sort of comes to my ne next point there is a plan in place, I think is so important. So, you know, it's really common that a lot of competitors will write down a list of, you know, 12 to 15 restaurants that they want to attend and they miss out on, on, on attending for the last six months. And it's that thought process of like, I need to exhaust this list in the first week. Uh, that's where you start to come into trouble, right? Of binge eating and all those sorts of things because you're suddenly filling your entire week with extremely palatable foods. So I think it's important to have a plan in place as to, okay, yeah, I want to go to this restaurant with my partner, my friend, et cetera. You know, maybe I, I schedule that for uh, maybe the night of the show. I enjoy myself, but then the following week, I need to get back into like a plan. I need to have something in place, a meal plan or at least uh, some guidance in relation to macros or targets or something like that that can help me. So I think having a plan in place, accepting accepting the recovery diet as being an integral component to restoring health uh, are probably like some two really important qualities to um, to capitalize on. Yeah, there's there's just so many different elements to talk about in uh, in the post show phase, and I think those if I had to list a few of them, like those would definitely be up there. And I think a lot of it is also, in my opinion, about getting the athlete to figure out what is going to be the best for them because some people like myself it wouldn't be very healthy for another competitor but for me it's very it's much easier just to kind of be strict in that post-show phase and be strict for like six to eight weeks afterwards and allow my body to metabolically adapt as you said regain energy availability and regain body fat and after that I have more peace of mind that I can then be a bit more flexible but I don't necessarily need to incorporate a lot of extra flexibility straight away um, and that works really well for me. It works well for Tierra too. Granted, it it's uh, granted some competitors being quite strict afterwards has the opposite effect. They then uh, lose all control because they can't prolong that strictness. And I think also the way in which you conduct yourself throughout the prep itself is integral for how successful you are afterwards. Like for example, as D Y was saying about Lawrence, like. Lawrence has been having really good strategies with his nutrition throughout the whole prep. And he's um, on slightly higher food as well than the average competitor. And I think that'll translate really well into post-prep. Like he's not watching food videos. He's not, uh, <laughs> at least I hope not. He's not having a whole lot of diet foods and hyper palatable foods. And I think he's not hoarding any food either. He hasn't got a, a kind of a cupboard in his room full of candy bars. So I think that'll translate nicely to his reverse phase. No, mm, absolutely. I just wanted to touch on that quickly. And sorry, boys, I was looking on my phone because I was actually trying to remember where it was from. But, you know, like, yes, I'm I'm a very seasoned competitor. Like I've been doing like what this is my fourth season, been bodybuilding since 2017. And that's like actively competing. But in my last prep in 2020, like I still remember, granted, it was only one night, but there was one night where I massively overdid it. Like I went to a birthday party with Gemma. There was a it was like one of those where it was just like food get kept getting put out because it was this catering company and the amount of trips I made to that buffet was ridiculous. And Gemma actually like said to me like, Hey, like kind of in a, in a polite way, like pull your head in, like not in the way of like, Hey, I'm trying to look out for you post show and like to hit your macros, but just as in like, dude, like it's weird the amount you are going up to this food table. And like looking back, it completely was. And I remember holding myself accountable to take my my photos the next morning and I was just looking at them and I look like absolute garbage. And I mean, like this was coming off a look in 2020. I, it was pretty good, you know, like I did, I did pretty well, got very shredded. And this is like, 
you know, six weeks post show and just like the bloating and then like the bloating makes you look small and, and it just sucks, man. Like, and then even a week after that from getting back to normal food, I look a lot better. So it's like, yes, you might have, you know, a quote unquote blowout. Like I wouldn't characterize it as a, a binge in the sense where I like completely lost control, but there will be nights that you overdo it. And I think it's just important to remember that be kind to yourself. Like post-show is really hard. Um, and probably a lesson that I'll take into this post-show period is, is not to be complacent because I remember feeling similar to how I felt now in my last prep in terms of like the food focus being low, food was still relatively high and just thinking I'm going to completely breeze this. And I wasn't at all thinking about having plans in place of being mindful and strategies to use post-show. Whereas this time around, I am thinking about that. So I'm not going into the post-show period with that same amount of complacency as I did last time, which I think will be beneficial, especially given in the fact that like we will be in an environment post-show where you can very easily overdo it. I think also like your, I'm speaking for, I guess, every bodybuilder, but remember you still are a bodybuilder post-show like just because you've finished your season doesn't mean you're no longer a bodybuilder so remember why you got into the sport of bodybuilding I would hope that it's because of your love for training so therefore yes if you're seeing your physique sort of um if you've seen your body fat uh, increase after your post-show period then remember what got you into it your, your love of training did and that needs to reignite afterwards and it will reignite granted i don't think anyone's desire for training is overly high towards the end of prep but as your energy availability increases like your enthusiasm around training should certainly go up mm, definitely i also think it's so important to sort of establish like a new sense of purpose right because i think when you're contest prepping your identity becomes completely surrounded around the contest prep. You know, like you think about your colleagues at, at work, you know, the, the, the conversation always comes around as to like, how's your prep going? Like you're the prep athlete, you're the person who's in prep. And all of a sudden when that's, that, that, that is no longer the case, uh, I think a lot of competitors struggle with the, the concept of like who they are at that point in time. And, you know, I think that's why it's important when, when the contest prep ends to sort of reestablish your, your why or your purpose and perhaps use that opportunity to just kind of set some goals up, you know, moving forward as well. And it might be a goal centered around when your next comp season is going to be, but it could even be, even if you have no uh, thought process around, you know, an exact date in which you can, you plan on complete competing, it could just be simply centered around, okay, I've got a new program in place. This program is going to run for six weeks. I've got my programming planned out. I've got my nutrition planned out. Like everything is kind of planned out moving forward. I've set my goals in place. They could be in relation to performance goals. I want to you know, hit my first 200 kilogram on a deadlift, or I want to hit my first 100 kilo on a deadlift, or I want to bench 60 kilos or 120 kilos. Like it doesn't, you know, it, it obviously doesn't really matter, but it's just about uh, setting up some goals moving forward. And I think uh, if, if you're, you, you kind of need to, I feel like at the end of prep, uh, realize that, that all of those, uh, all of the benefits of contest prepping in itself, you know, the, the discipline and the routine, the, showcasing to yourself what you're truly capable in terms of taking your performance and training to a place uh you need to sort of capitalize and, and keep holding on to at the art you know the after the prep itself so maintaining that structure in place that that structure that you were able to like you showcase to yourself you're able to structure a six-month prep and hit your meals every day hit your training sessions every day prioritize your steps prioritize sleep like these are all great things to still prioritize leading into your off season and uh, no doubt that's going to 
you know, presents an even more improved physique that thereafter. So not sort of chucking all of these things out the window immediately once the contest prep is completely done. And I think some competitors can walk away kind of, I guess maybe if they didn't achieve their desired result, sort of resenting prep in itself and, and resenting maybe that experience. And, and I think at that point in time, it's also important to, again, you know, find a kind of find your why, right. And, and look back on prep in, in a favorable manner as to what, what you showcase you're capable of achieving uh, and using that motivation and that fire to, to fuel you within your off season. For sure. Yeah. And yeah, if anyone wants to reach out to us on, bodybuilding down under if they're struggling with their post comp phase or you feel like you are maybe setting yourself up for a um a struggle then feel free to reach out and no doubt one of us can help you out with some words of wisdom or even better reach out to your current coach they should hopefully be able to help you as well so this next question this one's for you dy so listen up uh we're just (laughs) we're just talking around the uh the men's physique ipb new weight caps because i think that's been a a recent announcement so Mm. why don't you sort of explain what's happened there and like what are your what are your thoughts on it do you think it's going to be good for the sport I think it's going to be good for the sport, but I do think there's probably a little bit more of an advantage to some of the taller guys there as well, considering that they're probably going to look a little bit more aesthetic for the weight that they have. Um, but with that being said, like you look at some of the men's physique guys and they nearly look, look like classic physique guys in board shorts and they pretty much have the legs as well. So I was like, you know, there's probably honestly not too much of a difference. Like if you were to get half the, the men's physique guys in board, uh, take off the board shorts, put them in classic trunks, you know, they could pretty much do damage there. So I definitely think it is a step in the right direction in terms of actually having the cap. It's kind of weird that, you know, they only have the cap on classic physique and then none of the other divs. So I do think it has its merit. Now, with that being said, I'm going to have to put on 25 kilos from my last stage showing to uh, meet that cap. So I've got a very, very long way to go there in regards to that. Um, But in regards to the second half of the question, which do you think they should do it for like natty feds? Um, I think Stu's already got that for like um, in terms of like the men's fitness within their div. They didn't want the men's fitness guys trickling over into the like physique category. So they did put a weight cap on it, which was quite low it was slightly lower than what i was when i was that high um i think for example it was like 69 kgs and i think i was 70 so i just need to be a touch lighter but i think that's a good thing like you know you see these competitors and they do well in men's fitness uh men's physique and then classic physique as well so having a weight cap on you know some of those divisions like you know might be able to stop the branch over into some of the other divisions hmm yeah, I'm very interested to see how it goes. And I know another change that they made was also ensuring that the board shorts have to be, I think it's two inches, yeah, two inches above the kneecap. So they can't just let their legs atrophy essentially to kind of make the weight cap. They've got to show that they have been training legs as well to some extent. So, yeah. And I've also just spit out some numbers as well so people can sort of picture this. So if someone is, I would reckon an average men's physique competitor, what, like 5'9", five, 5'10", five, at, at the Olympia mm. in terms of height. So that's like 175 centimeters, 177. And so that means you can be up to like 194 pounds for 175 centimeters and then up to 202 pounds for 177. So it's honestly quite a big weight jump for uh, for just literally two and a half centimeters. <laughs> I think that's an extra uh, eight pounds of muscle you could potentially yeah. have. 
yeah, it's, it's and then like, you know, some of those guys are a little bit taller as well. So then therefore their waist probably looks even smaller, you know, chances are they've even got wider shoulders. So I think it definitely does favor some of the taller guys there. How tall are you? You would be like 177 in that range up to one. About six, five, six, right. five. Okay. Yeah. Well, then no, you, I'm about, I'm about, like, I'm uh, about 5'11", 5'11". So right. that'd be like 95 kilos. I believe I yeah, saw it. Yeah, pounds. Pounds. Yeah. Yeah. But but I mean, if you're six, seven, could... you can be up to like two sixty-seven pounds. So, yeah, yeah, I'll, lucky them. I'll, I'll hang off a door frame and you know <laughs> get someone to stretch me out. Lawrence can stretch me out while we're over in Seattle, ten sets of like uh, one-minute holds or something. Yeah, a little bit of cervical distraction. Just let me do it. I'll crack your neck while we're in there. Exactly. I'll spike up my hair and we're good to go. Run a bowhawk. <laughs> I actually had one of my clients get uh, corrective surgery on his leg to kind of even the discrepancy between right and left leg. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, you could do that if you wanted to. Do you know how big the discrepancy was? Because that's like, that's one of those classic kind of quackery things where it's like, you know, a chiropractor tells you that your left leg is two millimeter longer. So Mm. they need to crack your back three times a week for the next 40 years to prevent back pain from coming on. Like, yeah, I hope it wasn't. I think it was quite significant. I think it was in the centimeters region. Yeah. Which if you you can imagine that would be quite. Yeah. I've heard of like, there's surgeries now to like make people taller. Like they will like lengthen the shaft of your tibia, like to make Mm. you taller, but that's wild. Yeah. Wild yeah i mean if we see dy taller in these coming years then we know why six foot five just to fill out that weight cap you know i'll only need to put on like another 35 kilos at that point too so easily done 100 so this next one is i'm gonna i've skipped a question here i will go back to it uh if you guys are wondering but this one's for you lawrence can abs change their shape with muscle maturity over time uh no I mean, if we're talking about like the true, like to use a, a BKism muscle architecture, yeah, you, you like that DC? Oh, I like, like that. That's yeah. A... Um, if we're talking about the actual shape of the muscle, there there really isn't anything that can be done about that. Now, I think you know, yes, it can appear that like they might look rounder or you know thicker, bubblier as you you increase the muscle mass in that area, and I think that's one of the sort of things that has changed about the fitness industry, or at least there's a better understanding in the bodybuilding industry. You know, it's, it's very like common to say in like the lay population of, Oh, abs are made in the kitchen. Whereas like any competitor knows that the only way you're going to see good abdominals on stage is if you've got sufficient muscle mass, it's kind of like saying glute striations are made in the kitchen. Like they're not like in 2018, I got very lean. I had like one glute line because I didn't have any glutes. So it really isn't just about your conditioning. It's about having enough muscle there for it to even show through. So I think like around muscle maturity, yes, it might give you the appearance that the muscle is slightly different in shape, but ultimately the insertions of the muscle, the borders of the muscle, they are what they are. And there's really not much that you're going to change about that. Like, the shape will change because it gets bigger, but there's nothing you can do to change the insertions. And that, like abdominals are kind of one of those muscles where it's like, you sort of, you get what you get, don't you? Like even people who put in 
massive amounts of grinding to grow their abs. Maybe they're training them every day in the off season. Like sometimes it doesn't really yield that much in terms of improvements, kind of like calves. I mean, yes, we all still do it because it's a one percenter. Um, but I would say that abdominals are, are one of those where you are largely just rolling the dice when it comes to your genetics. Yeah. I would say maybe an exception, or at least I'd like to think so, is maybe someone who has shallow abs. Like they've got, they've got obviously got abs, like they've got a rectus abdominis, but it's quite shallow and they train it a lot using weighted abdominal movements. And maybe the next time they compete, it's it's much more distinguishable. Like technically the, the structure or the shape hasn't changed, but it's just more visible to the eye. Yeah. And I do agree. But how often, like, yeah, not how often. often. Yeah. yeah, and that's the thing. It's just like, how often do you notice where they go, oh my gosh, that person's abs are a lot better this time around. Like a lot of the time, the people that you see with the best abs, it's kind of like the people you see with the best calves. They don't even train them. They don't care. And it's just like, they're just blessed with those. Like, I mean, take like, look at Kenyon, like Josh Kenyon. It's just like super blocky, like Cadbury block abs that are just like absurdly symmetrical. And I'm sure he trains abs because I'd imagine AJ would want him training abs, but I'm sure it wasn't a, a focus of their off season. You know what I mean? Or remember that guy, I think we brought him up on the podcast before. Um, he used to One work with AJ. Clients, yeah. was it his like, name was Josh as well. Yeah. And he used to go by like Dante on Instagram or something like that. Like this dude had literally abs look animated. It was ridiculous mm. how symmetrical they were. Yeah. I mean, I'll be mm. a good case study because like I... I don't have super shallow abs, but they're definitely not overly thick. So I've been training them like religiously every session, three sets of anywhere from 10 to 25 reps or weighted movements, getting really good spinal flexion, doing some hanging knee raises, doing cable abdominal crunch and decline sit-ups. So, I mean, that'll that'll be interesting for myself. I think noticeably, I I honestly have, especially in even the front relax pose where my abdominals are stretched, I have noticed some increased thickness there um, and not just body fat. But I've also been training my serratus a lot, which I think has been giving me some additional structure on the sides as well. But we'll find out in in a year from now how how different mm. it looks. Mm. So in, I think in like 12, guess the... in 12 years from now. <laughs> so I guess the summary here is that the only way that you're changing shape of a muscle is just simply pure, purely hypertrophy or, or atrophy, right? Like, I guess you look at the aging process of someone who is getting older and older, maybe just doesn't train as much, detraining occurs, atrophy occurs. Um, there's going to be some shape change, absolutely. But it's not because it's changed to, um, again, muscle architecture or insertion or origin or anything like that. Mm, yes, well said. Uh, this one's for UDC. Like, what are your thoughts on doing mock peak weeks, like two to three weeks out from a competition? Mm. Yeah, I, I think um, like mock peak weeks, I, I, w I don't think I would ever mock an entire peak week uh, in the sense of, you know, like actual run a, an exact peak week or what that would look like. Like, you know, run the depletion and then run the carb up and then taper the steps down and then you know, load on the show day and then, and all the, 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 the mock show day and then assess look. Save, like, I would, tan, yeah, drink tan. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, Do I don't the old uh, lounge room classic. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah, no, I don't think, I don't think, yeah, I don't, th I don't think I've ever heard of a coach ever doing it that extreme of a, of like a mock peak week, so to speak. But I think there is merit to, to sort of, you know, gathering data on your, on your athlete in terms of how they may respond to, 
carbohydrate loading, higher or lower days, um, you know, assessing assessing their look before and after. I mean, in my definition of like mocking a peak week, that's that's what I would be looking at. I wouldn't be, you know, doing all the, the other additional bits and pieces to, to mock that peak week out. Um, it would generally be looking at someone's response to, to carbohydrate loading um, prior, prior to the show, perhaps in the, you know, the sub five week mark looking at running hopefully at that point i mean the goal i guess uh, leading into into the show in terms of conditioning is to strike that conditioning standpoint you know with sitting at perhaps 90 but 98 percent of where you need to be at sort of the five week out mark four week out mark right a month from the show and then you can start to persuade your protocol so that you can manipulate uh, the protocol to be maybe a couple of high days you know your frequency of high days to low days sits higher so you might have you know three high days and um, for low days, as an example, to kind of slow down the magnitude of the rate of loss. And that then gives you the opportunity to look at, at how someone responds to that protocol before and after the load. Uh, and that's what I would anticipate that, that you know, trialing a peak would look like. But yeah, not, not an entire peak itself. Yeah, I think especially if you're running behind time and conditioning wise, you don't necessarily want to run a, a, full, a full mock peak. But I think also if you're, it gives you a good opportunity to assess like for example a mid load versus a back load versus a front load or tapering up into the show which might not be assessed during the prep itself because either you're not running high days at all or refeeds at all or maybe you're just running like standalone one day refeeds or something which doesn't give you enough data to really decide which peak week approach is going to be best for for the individual so Next question. I think we just need a very simple kind of one or the other for this one, like picking one of these for the rest of your life, protein powder or creatine. And we'll go broad with the protein powder. It could be casein. It could be a, a whey blend. It could be vegan protein if if you partake in that. But I think I'd have to choose protein powder. Mm. I think I would probably have to go the same. Like even though there's so much benefit to creatine, probably over protein powder, the convenience of protein powder is just too much. I think it overweighs it. Yeah. Mm, I'm probably the opposite. I think I would select creatine um, just because I don't think I can truly saturate my creatine stores just with food alone. So, but I can, I can replace protein with, with, with food. Right. So uh, I guess if I was looking at it from an optimality standpoint, I'd probably select creatine. What about a practicality Um, standpoint? Well, I mean, practicality, I guess protein would, would be the, the um the selection there but uh i don't really use a lot of protein powder these days anyway so i'm probably going to select the the creatine yeah i'm going to take the creatine as well because i and i do use a decent amount of protein powder most notably in the cream of rice however the cream of rice would still be tremendous sans protein powder but would my gains be as tremendous sans creatine as jack likes to call it which is ludicrous, mate. You've got to be the only dietitian bodybuilder on the planet that doesn't know how to say the word properly. No, I think I'm saying it correctly. Everyone else is wrong, actually. As opposed to the other 6 billion on the planet. Yeah. I'm sure someone Outrageous. else says it like me the correct way. <laughs> I'll, I'll give my vote to creatine as well, Mr. DC. Team creatine over here. I'm having like, or like 70, 80 grams of protein powder a day at the moment. So like it would be tough to actually mm. sub that out. Hence, uh, what flavor? Uh, it's the new VPA one, which I can't announce. Sorry, I know you'll be uh, broken ooh, by that. Oh, sponsored exclusive. 
Sorry, dear listener, we are but mere mortals, <laughs> mm. so we we don't get to find out buckwheat That's flour brutal. flavor. Oh, yeah. Buckwheat Buck- flavor. <laughs> yeah, it's passion fruit sandpaper. Yeah, it's like the, the Jack Radford Smith limited edition line. Billium <laughs> mm. yeah. husk flavor. Yeah, yeah, the husk. Yeah, or the Tierra and Elson range. What's what would Tierras be? Sardine. Mm. <laughs> yeah, sardine Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, how good. Right. So, DY, in your opinion, which do you think is more important in prep, intensity or volume? Only get to pick one? Hmm. Yeah, well, uh, oh, am I gonna, get both. Uh, like, like, it's hard because you definitely need both. Like, you know, if you do one set across the entirety of the week, there's not enough volume there to keep the muscle mass. It doesn't matter realistically how hard you try, and, uh, unless you're Mike Mensa, of course. But then at the exact same time, you can't do like, you know, 10 sets of z- like fucking 30 RIR and then expect you to keep your muscle mass as well. So there's definitely a fine balance there between the two. But if I had to probably lean towards one side, I'd definitely say I'd probably be the intensity side. Mm-hmm. That would be, you could get away with far less sets, might not even come close to the volume you might be able to replicate if you train like a pussy, um, which I do. So I do the higher volume approach, but <laughs> <laughs> but definitely I would be leaning towards the intensity because yeah, mm. just out of preference. Yeah, there's definitely a wide range of approaches. Like I know AJ he's in his pre-prep phase and i think he's already doing uh one set on the hack and one set i think he's recently changed his leg press to one set as well and he trains legs every five days so that means in a week like he might only be getting like six i don't know i don't want to speak for him but it's it's less than 10 sets of quads that's for mm-hmm. sure so but realistically you only need four plus sets to elicit a hypertrophy hypertrophy response so like realistically he could probably get away with even less because of how hard he trains yeah and even it's not just how hard but also as we talked with brandon like the uh the stimulus and the accuracy of training as well like that's integral like someone Mm who one doesn't train with much intensity but also their their accuracy and their the stimulus they achieve in the set is poor then they probably need a shitload of volume but uh yeah, did I? You guys want to weigh in on that at all? Other two? Yeah, I think that it's it's one of those things where just make sure it's individualized. Like it's it's very easy to get caught up in like the whole volume versus intensity, and you know you see your favorite Instagram person doing low volume, so all of a sudden you're doing a top and a back off, but it's like you haven't earned that yet. Because like for myself, like I have had like I've got a few clients who I train and like not many of them are on a top and a back offset approach because they're just not at that point where they need it. So like from my perspective, it's like, okay, once you cannot sustain your top set performance, even with a big rest period, okay, sweet. Now we can maybe lower the volume. But when it comes to prep, it's very easy to just shy away from the work. And I remember having a conversation with DY when I was sort of like worried that, okay, like, should I pull back my volume now? Like, should I drop a set here? And like, DY was like, well, how's your training performance? I was like, oh, it's still going up. And he was like, do you feel bashed? I was like, not really. He's like, well, why would you lower it? Like, so then managed to eke out another whatever weeks on top of that before then making the call like, okay, now I'm actually really struggling to maintain that performance. Now I'm operating with one hamstring. Let's yeah. drop the training before. I was out to say one week later, then snapped his hamstring. And then I said, well, what yeah. the fuck do I know? 
Yeah, so no, I think that it is worth considering and like, especially given the fact that we know we don't need as much volume to maintain muscle as we do to build muscle. I think that's where you can be confident that lowering your volume is a good idea. So if you're getting to the stage in prep where you're just so draggy, the sessions are taking a long time, your training performance is just going to the dogs. Maybe that is where you need to have that chat of like, okay, if I give myself a little bit less work to do, can I perform it to a higher intensity? Can I get more quality done? And then can I go from there? Like for one, for one, like now that I'm not doing RDLs anymore, like my first leg session of the week is about half an hour shorter because I'm not spending that time sort of doing RDLs, warming up for RDLs. And it's really nice because I'm, I'm in and out a bit quicker. I feel a bit fresher afterwards and it doesn't feel like it completely beats me down in the same way. Um, but I think you want to hold off as long as you can to just keep doing the hard stuff in prep whilst you feel good and grant yourself that lower volume down the back end when you actually need it. Mm, definitely. I, I think just to chime in there, like intensity needs to be significant enough for retention of lean tissue and volume needs to be the same. So it needs to be sufficient enough for, for retention of lean tissue. I think in a prep, our ability to, to put on more muscle mass, especially if we're an advanced base athlete, um, is probably pretty, pretty low. I, I guess maybe, maybe there, there might be some recomposition effect towards the, the earlier aspects of a prep, but definitely not, not happening towards the end, the end of a prep. Um, but I think there's like, you can't have one without the other. You know, I think it's, it's almost, it's almost shouldn't even be a debate. You know what I mean? Like, is it volume or intensity is important? Well, they're both, they're both actually just really important and you kind of can't have one without the, without the other. Right. It's because let's say, for example, if I just approach things as uh, my, my focus was intensity and all I ever did was, was once one working set on like all of my exercises. Uh, well, I mean, if we look at, for example, someone like AJ, he's doing that one, one set on his, on his hacks, but he's doing more sets that on obviously other various movements. His sets for leg extensions might be sitting a lot higher as an example, Dude, still get some quality. Yeah. To get, to get, to get quality, uh, to get quality, you know, volumes in, in place. Um, but I think if someone else was to adopt that sort of approach, I mean, most individuals probably, uh, a, a way further away from their true, you know, one to two to zero RIR yeah. than what they, what they think. Right. So if I employed a extremely low volume approach to my training, it could just be really like my volume, my, my, my intensity could be far lower than what, what I actually think. So I think a really low volume approach, uh, is probably not ample for, 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 for most people, I would say. Uh, and then obviously if you go super high with your volumes, then you might sacrifice intensity as well because uh, I'm either going to go super high intensity and just just burn out and see massive drop offs in my loads because I'm doing you know six sets of of ten on a on a on a dumbbell bench press because um, I look at everything as like a mixer analogy right so like if you look at for example a, a DJ they change something in terms of a dial they need to kind of fix something else they need to change something else and you know volume intensity and frequency are our variables to to influence there's there's others as well but. Just as an example there, you know, so we kind of need to find that kind of perfect match between each of them with that provides, you know, the best quality stimulus within our training. And I think that's probably going to look a little bit different for, for everybody and, uh, you know, in terms of their trainability, how, how well they train, how productive their sessions are, how well they recover, you know, et cetera. But 
without going too much on a tangent, I just think that both are very, very important, particularly within a contest prep. And I shouldn't even say particularly because it's important either side, like either side of the equation, off season contest prep, you need to be training with enough intensity and you're probably not training as hard as what you think. Like you're probably training less hard than what you actually think you are. And second to that, uh, you need to train with adequate volumes to actually produce enough, enough bouts of a stimulus to adapt, adapt and grow from. And, um, yeah, I don't want to don't want to go on a tangent for too long. Yeah, but it's definitely think... easily to go into a rabbit hole. But um, yeah, I think the important thing to also remember is there's levels to this. Like a first time competitor, they've been training for maybe three years, going to be very different to again to mention AJ, someone like AJ who trains with great intensity and great accuracy, can produce a really great stimulus from just one set. Yeah, you shouldn't be comparing yourself to someone like him who's who's very experienced and he's incredibly good at training. So I think that's again, another valid point to not, uh, not compare yourself to others. So final question is just around cardio and prep. Like we've talked around this before, but like we haven't necessarily said, which is actually better between steps and cardio uh, granted steps kind of is cardio, but, and it's not as easy as just giving a black or white answer, but I'll throw this over to you first. DY. Preferably between the two, I would always go steps first okay. and then add and white, on. Then. Uh, well, fuck, I'll shut my mouth. <laughs> no, 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 sorry, sorry. No, no, I'll, yeah, I would always go steps first and then add in the cardio from there, depending on like their lifestyle factors and stuff like that. Um, obviously, you know, you're an office worker. There's sometimes no chance you're able to get over like 12.5 thousand steps. What's easier, going to do another 30 minute walk to get another 2.5 to get 15K or doing 15 to 20 minutes on a spin bike, like, you know, maybe a couple of times a week to equate the calories that would be equal to the steps. Um, so the cardio definitely has its place for a majority of people. But if I had to pick one or the other, I'll definitely go steps. But I feel like there's a, there's a cap to the steps where, you know, you can't go further. Uh, mm. Otherwise the client hates you. Yeah, there's a point of diminishing returns, I think, also, where if you need to achieve more expenditure, then it's not particularly efficient to do it by steps. So you're better off doing a more efficient route. Yeah. But that being said, I also feel like depending on the cardio that you choose, it also brings a level of like stress and fatigue that mm. might counter some of the training where steps very low level of fatigue like you know you can realistically get get them even when you're dying now doing a hard cardio session for like you know 20 to 30 minutes where you need to burn maybe three four hundred calories that's a little bit of a different situation now that might add up and then it might catch over into some of your other training sessions and then it can start a little bit of an issue anything to mm. add guys um i was just gonna add that like i think the the sort of cardio or, or steps uh, like approach or like pros and cons approach is, is centered on, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to expend more energy, like, should I be doing, you know, 30 minutes on the bike every day, or should I be like tracking my steps? It's like one, one or the other essentially. And I always look at it from the premise that when you track your steps, you get an understanding around your neat, neat levels, right? So non-exercise activity thermogenesis, basically meaning the amount of calories you expend from day to day, just based on sort of bodily movement. And unfortunately, steps doesn't account for everything. So if I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm chatting with you guys and I'm moving my hands around, I'm going to be expending some degree of energy. But steps gives me a relatively good proxy of, of roughly how much I'm, I'm moving from day to day. So I think the benefit of, for example, tracking steps is it, it, it accounts for that. So if I set a baseline of, hey, we need to you know, achieve 8,000 steps every day at minimum, 
then I at least I, I know I'm going to expend X amount of you know calories based on that day-to-day movement. I think one of the problems that can arise with trying to, let's say, do a contest prep and not track steps and only track cardio is that as a product of, let's say, a, a reduction in metabolic rate, an increase in fatigue, uh, what I can do is I can start to like downregulate my need. So all of a sudden, I just don't move as much. I decide to, you know, if I'm sitting on the couch and I need to get up to go to the bathroom and I'm just like super tired, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to sit here and just kind of take it. I'll, I'll sit here for an extra half an hour. Don't worry about it. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm reducing my, my day-to-day step count. So I guess the magnitude of the deficit that I create with nutrition can be somewhat offset by a reduction in energy that I expend through my, my day-to-day movement. So I think I always, I always preface it as, you know, steps kind of acts as like our baseline. Okay. Let's set a baseline of, of day-to-day movement. And then, and then I, if the athlete prefers to uh, structure their additional energy expenditure via cardio, maybe it is the, the stepper or the recumbent cycle or something like that. I think that's fine to be able to add in, but I'll always give the athlete a baseline step count that I want them to achieve. So that if fatigue does accrue and there is that, you know, adaptive thermogenesis in place, and I'm not moving as much and I'm, I'm tired, et cetera. Like I'm still hitting a baseline and I, I therefore have something to assess like and manipulate moving forward. Uh, I think, yeah, a lot of people don't, don't track steps and all of a sudden they're, they're doing cardio and it's like, I'm not losing the weight anymore. Why is, it, is this the case? Well, I'm sitting on my ass for every other aspect of the day, other than that 30 minutes on the bike. I mean, the, the, the calories that you burn simply just in that 30 minutes, not really going to be significant enough to, um, to sort of, you know, make up the, the, the vast the reduction in, in the needs. But, um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Hmm. Does Lawrence get an opinion though, considering he's never done cardio in prep? I technically have. I, in the first two preps that we did, we didn't track steps. So I did actually have cardio. It was on the incline treadmill. Right. So but I, I'll, I'll eat my steps. words then. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. But no, I'll I think that it's... Sense. Yeah, well, because jo- Joey didn't like always do the, the step count thing. Like he's definitely evolved um, yeah. as as he has grown as a coach. But mm. I think, you know, like it's exactly what you said, DC. It's it's just a way to offset the, the natural sort of decline in neat. Um, but I also laugh when people go, oh, shredded, I'm stage ready, no cardio. And they're doing 25,000 steps a day. It's like, well, like you may as well be doing cardio because you're doing a large amount of expenditure above your baseline. So yeah, I always find that quite humorous. Mm, well, I, I see that as still cardio. Like that's still yeah. your cardio. Like, yeah, achieving, 100%, like, you know, 10K steps a day, or 12K steps a day. Like that's still cardio. You're still, mm. you know, like if you're not making up that activity, uh, just from like your day-to-day neat levels, like walking to the car and, you know, things like that, walking up the stairs at work. And then you're spending like an hour and a half on the treadmill and you're like, I'm not doing any cardio. Coach hasn't given me any cardio. Like, nah, man, you're doing tons of cardio. <laughs> you think Arnold counted his steps? Like literally? Book and pen. Yeah, that's yeah, what I was thinking. pen, just every step just that he tally. Booked, it was just a tally here. Yeah. <laughs> Keeping well, it real. Get the chopper. <laughs> Great. Well, that wraps uh, wraps up this episode. If you enjoyed it, make sure to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and take a screenshot. You can post it to your Instagram story if you want and make sure to tag Bodybuilding Down Under and we'll catch you guys next week. Bye.